When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a new podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. I'm one of your hosts, Arthi Vade. John Plotz is my co-host and co-creator of the show. You'll be hearing from him in upcoming episodes. Here in Novel Dialogue, we believe critics and novelists belong in conversation, and we invite them to talk about novels from every angle, how we read them, write them, publish them, and remember them. We strive to bring you, our listeners, friendly and sophisticated dialogues that dissect the art of novel writing and consider the influence of characters, plots, and stories on how we think about our world. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Novel Dialogue on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm in the virtual studio with two incredibly talented writers and thinkers. Kelly Rich is our critic, and Teju Cole is our novelist. Kelly Rich, our critic, is an associate professor of English at Harvard, where she teaches courses on modernism, the contemporary novel, as well as law and literature. Her forthcoming book is called States of Repair, Institutions of Private Life in the Post-War Anglophone Novel. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for being here today. Hello, be here. Teju Cole is our esteemed novelist, and I should add photographer, essayist, and all-around polymath. He is the author of, amongst many works, the mesmerizing and prize-winning novel Open City, the photo book Blind Spot, the essay collection Known and Strange Things, and most recently, an essay for the New York Times Magazine on reacquainting himself with the Italian painter Caravaggio. In the New York Times piece, Teju says, and I'm quoting him, I seek him out, Caravaggio, for a certain kind of otherwise unbearable knowledge, unquote. I have followed Teju's work for almost 10 years now, and I would say the same is true about my relationship to his writings and images. His work offers surprising, but not exactly jarring juxtapositions of beauty and violence. In fact, his prose handles contradictions so delicately that unlikely bedfellows, 16th century painting, and the global migrant crisis, for example, become seamlessly connected and mutually illuminating. Welcome, and Teju, we're so glad you could do the show today. Thank you for having me, Ardi. Thank you. Yes. Now, here's where I recede into the background, only to appear in spots. And Kelly, I pass the virtual mic to you. So for this podcast on the novel and narrative, I'm sure that listeners are eager to hear when you might return, if at all, to long-form fiction. I know you have a piece, a recent piece out, um, City of Pain, a, a beautiful short story that meditates 
both directly and indirectly on the sort of state of affairs that we're living in now under coronavirus. Um, but your work has really since departed from long form fiction since Open City and Every Day is for the Thief, which was published in 2007 with you revisiting it and revising it in 2014. Uh, you've since turned to meditate on the visual, particularly on photography, which you've been doing serious work in for many years. And you've also really come into your own as a cultural critic and a social commentator. So in a way, I think you're actually um, well-placed, perhaps more so than other novelists, to comment um, both on the affordances, but also what you see as the limitations of the novel. So I was hoping we could start there. Uh, mm. If you could comment a bit on why um, the departure, knowing of course that um, so much of your work still is in conversation with the process of writing novels, as you um, note in Blind Spot, for mm. instance. Um, but if you could comment on why this departure and what might draw you back to the novel, yeah. which I think huh. so many of us are eager for you to return yes. to the novel <laughs> form. You know, for the past few months, I have been working quite intently on a novel. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the most sustained period of focused work on a long form fiction that I've had since Open City. Um, mm. I've done a lot more writing. I have also ha had many attempts um, that did not feel like they were what I needed to do or that did not feel like they were working properly. Um, so right now it's a good place to be, to be returning to the novel as a maker of a novel, but also in a sense as a as someone who's just taught novels, as somebody who thinks about novels in a critical way. Um, and uh, it's a funny but interesting position to be. Um, in fact, part of what I have to do when I sit at my desk and I'm creating these pages that are set in a fictional or fictionalized world, um, part of what I have to do is ask myself questions about, um, well, part of, Part of it is I have to ask myself questions about what the novel can do now. So I'm interested in the flexibility of the form, in breaking the form, in pushing the form forwards. And one of the things I really think about when I recall all of your really, I think, significant work in what many people take to be an insignificant medium, which mm -hmm. is social media, mm -hmm. um, when I think about you know, the Fay Diver experiments mm. on Twitter or mm. the crowdsourced uh, distributed short story Hafiz. Mm. I sometimes think about you as someone who took a break from writing novels, but had the spirit that people had when the novel was new, which was you were testing a new medial environment. You know, say a, a Samuel Richardson writing Clarissa didn't mm. actually, he thought he was addressing women of a certain type to educate them. But Daniel Defoe wanted to trick his readers and he wanted them to think Robinson Crusoe was- Was a memoir. Was a memoir, precisely. And so is there something about letting your creativity move into new places that preserves the spirit of a novel, if not the genre or the form that we have now taken to recognize as novel? Yeah, I think, um... 
I mean, I think what back in my active Twitter days, one of the things I said was was that you know if if you're you don't go into a marathon and say I have not trained at all, I've not done any running, I've saved everything for the day of the marathon, <laughs> you'll collapse. You know um, what you do is that you run. You, 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 you do 10 miles, you do five miles, you do 10 miles, then you do a half marathon, and then you do a full marathon in practice. And then on the week before that, you, you taper it down. But you're running all the time. You don't say, I'm saving it all for that day. And I was interested, particularly in Twitter, in saying, I'm not saving anything for later. That even if I'm writing a tweet, my concentration wants to be there. You know, but your question also relates to actually the thought I was following earlier, which is that when I sit down to write, I'm not only writing against or with or conscious of the possibilities for the novel now or whatever. I'm also writing in response to everything I have said about yeah. novels. You know, um, I wouldn't call it pressure. I will call it... Um, a certain responsibility for proof of concept. You know, I can't. I cannot sit down and write a conventional 19th century novel now. I cannot. A lot of people can, and that's fine. Um, I have said so many things over the years about novels and thinking and creativity and about the relationship between inventing things and taking them from life and all of that, that when I, now that I'm inside this novel, um, I keep remembering so much of that. Um, I keep imagining myself not only finishing the book, but in a strange kind of way, potentially discussing it with Kelly, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to write for that future intelligent reader who also knows what's up inside the history of the novel? Um, this, could I just jump in here yes. for, for a second? So thrilled to hear that this is some of the work that you're doing doing right now. And I know you've described um, Open City as a reader's writing, you know, inflected by um, Mrs. Dalloway, by um, uh, Joyce's The Dead, for mm -hmm. instance, Ishiguro as, mm -hmm. as well. Um, and um, I'm curious to know maybe as a way to gently probe at your at this new writing of yours mm. is, is to ask um you know what are what are the texts or the intertexts that have aided this return to to mm. the novel kelly i'm not the i'm not the champion reader of contemporary fiction that you are um but i'm aware of a lot of the conversations that are happening inside it you know um so, for example, I've only read a few pages, uh, maybe 20 pages, of Outline by Rachel Cusk. But I've read a bunch of the reviews, and I have a sense of what she's up to. And I, I mean, I should, I should actually read that book because I like what she's up to. I like the vibe of it. But I'm thinking about somebody like that, for example, who... It, who has a certain relationship between um, autobiography and fiction, you know, um, and who's working with reticence quite a bit. 
And I think in your case, that that conflation between the real you and the you of the writing, as you have suggested, happened maybe more not with your nonfiction work, but with your with your fiction, um, mm -hmm. especially every day is for the thief. And mm -hmm. also, as you mentioned here with Open City. So I'm curious to know how that invocation of the person writing or the way that you inhabit that figure in your other works, did that ever kind of um, become troubled or did, did readers ever kind of misread that kind of writerly figure or authorial mm -hmm. figure that you that you positioned yourself in, in, in these texts in ways that you um, were surprised about? <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I think um, I was fortunate enough with Open City finding a slow but steadily increasing readership um, that inevitably it fell in the hands of some strange readers as well um, and was misread in certain ways. Uh -huh. I think this is something that I suspect, at least in the US, um, is a bit racialized. The idea of who can invent mm. and who is always a memoir writing subject. Um, so that, uh, let's say over the 10 years of the life of the book, I've it's common enough for people to say, oh, I really thought it was you. And then, you know, something strange happened at the end and I realized it wasn't. It's like, well, yeah, if you've been paying attention all through it, you'll also know that it's not me. But, yeah. okay, now you have, you know, I've had people ask me whether my, you know, what part of Germany my mother's from. And so my mother's not German. My mother's Nigerian. Julius's mother's German and so on. But a couple of times, once was in 2011 when the book came out. And then the second time was actually late last year. I have encountered people who thought I was using the book to confess to having committed rape. So they, they really thought it was a straight memoir. Mm -hmm. um, that's worrisome. Mm -hmm. um, to say the least. Mm -hmm. To say the least. Um, and yet that, I think that's what, it's an exaggerated version of what writers of fiction are tempting by writing fiction. Mm -hmm. Because on some level, you're always putting it out there, the idea of saying, I dare you to imagine me having these thoughts. If I say a, 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 a character has certain thoughts, I am telling you that at least in the guise of writing that character, I have had that thought, right? It is, it's even more fraught and more, in certain ways, more dangerous than when an actor does it. Mm. Usually because when we're watching something, that line is very, very clear. So I was thinking about the direction that perhaps creative writing pedagogy has gone in in the last decade or two, and just in general, the direction progressive politics has gone in. And whether this has something to do with the restraint 
people now feel they must show in the face of writing who they perceive to be other than themselves. And so now there is something about the reception of a character that is shaped by the notion that one can only write what one knows. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious whether you, who is, I mean, Open City thinks so deeply about the relationship between distance and intimacy and what is the way to address another person's history, what is the way to connect across difference. And so with autofiction, like you said, you're provoking or even courting the conflation of character and reader, but you've already been subjected to it in a way, and now you're That's taking right. control of it. That's right. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering if, you know, as both of you have, have been in the classroom together, um, is there a, a sea change in what writers feel they can authoritatively write about, especially young writers? You know, one of the things that occurs to me as we seek to make rounded characters, and this actually re relates to also to the classroom question, as we seek to invent rounded characters, is that genuine autobiographical attention potentially could give us the, the deepest roundness of all. Potentially could. Just because of how much hesitation, reversal, reconsideration you can put into, into the narrative, into that, into that person, you know? Um, so, okay, we have many big political discussions in our everyday life. Um, and if you go on social media, you will think, oh, battle lines are cleanly drawn. If you go into your text messages with the people you actually like and respect, you see that everything is complicated. Uh, and to write about any of those things autobiographically means to say this, but also this, but on the other hand, consider this. And a few days later, I actually thought of this other thing. Even while you're keeping in front of yourself um, a core of moral commitments, how that plays out um, can be infinitely nuanced. And I think that's, that's interesting to find a to try to find a way of writing that down that does not have the novel dying a death of a thousand cuts, but, but to actually have it be propelled by that kind of sane consideration and reconsideration. You know, um, that I think is what excites me uh, the most about it. You know, I mean, I can allude to one thing I've sort of written, for example, where the, you know, characters thinking about Bach, right? And uh, about some stuff that he likes in Bach, that I like in Bach. And if you ask me to talk about Bach, there are many things I could say. If I was just thinking, oh, this character just likes whatever, this recording of the Goldberg Variations. That's easy and simple enough. But for myself, it goes into so many other things, um, including the fact that Bach is a kind of shorthand for uh, a particular kind of sophistication, right? So Dutch people love Bach, uh, you know, Dutch intellectual 
German, I mean Germans, of course, but Dutch intellectual people are like, ah, oh, you know, like, so as a racialized American subject, what's my relationship to their love of, oh, you like Bach, you must be one of us. Well, I'm not one of you and not at all. Thinking about Bach himself being in, you know, Germany in the, you know, uh, 18th century, uh, very much a religious figure working inside that context, working inside a context where there's a great deal of anti-Semitism, which shows up in his own work as well. Nobody writes about this ever. And then looping that back into the way anti-Semitism might function in the contemporary for a young Black person like myself who is interested in speaking about Palestinian rights, right? How our public discourse definitely will never discuss the fact that, you know, the St. John Passion or the, you know, the St. Matthew Passion are basically anti-Semitic texts. Um, but if you say, you know, free Palestine, it's like, hmm, are we going to fire you or not? <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> The way you talked about Bach reminded me of the way you talked about Caravaggio in the New York Times piece. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to quote you again because I, I have it here. I apologize if that's at all. No, it's comforting. Fine. Okay. It's a recent enough piece that I'm proud of it. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have The old stuff, I'm like, oh, good that. <laughs> but right now, this is the best I could do under pandemic conditions. Oh, it's away. wonderful. I mean, this is a part that I highlighted because... I think it precisely goes against that either or mentality um, of either you love Bach or you want to free Palestine. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the very act of looking at an old painting can be so strange. It is an activity that is often bound up with class identity or social aspiration. It can sometimes feel like a diverting or irritating stroll amongst white people's ancestors. It can also often be wonderful, giving the viewer a chance to be blessed by a stranger's ingenuity or insight. But rarely something even better happens. A painting made by someone in a distant country hundreds of years ago, an artist's careful attention and turbulent experience sedimented onto a stretched canvas leaps out of the past to call you, to call you to attention in the present, to drive you to confusion by drawing from you both a sense of alarm and a feeling of consolation, to bring you to something that is well beyond the grasp of language, something that you wouldn't wish to live without. And there in one sentence, maybe two, is just um, why we look at objects mm -hmm. of art, right? And why mm -hmm. we read and why we think about music. And it starts with what sounds like is going to be a sociological critique of aesthetics, which it also is. I mean, it's both at once. It's true aesthetic experience felt and with a sense of immediacy, with full critical knowledge of patterns of taste and their associations. Always fighting for that irreducibility, mm. you know, is where I think this actually connects to what um, Kelly and I tried to do in the classroom. Um, you know, we taught a class called Literature Today, um, and we had a bunch of mostly first years and second years um, presenting them a, an array of fascinating 21st century texts, but mostly trying to teach them um, open-minded habits of reading. 
I don't think it worked in every single case because some students just really knew what they wanted out of a book. But I think for many students, there was a surprise of, oh, I can read not just for information, but for ways of apprehending information, you know, uh, for ways of expanding my mind. And I think this is a lifelong thing that we hoped to like deposit, you know, in, in, into, the, into their minds. Um, and I would like Kelly to actually address that a little bit. Um, mm. How questions of tolerance and open-mindedness uh, uh, intersected with what we were doing in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think that we each had different mantras or sort of axioms, literary axioms that we brought to the class. And what I found so invigorating and um, yeah, re refreshing pedagogically was that it looked different for both of us. For It looked different for a literary critic than it did for a writer. Mm -hmm. Teju often said, you know, I want you to think about things from a writerly perspective. Um, and that didn't always, it, it certainly overlapped. And one of the reasons I was excited to teach this class with you, Teju, is because I think you're, um, you know, you have a, a, a bright, alive, literary, critical mind as well as a creative mind. And so I thought that these those two things, that kinship would work really well in the classroom, and it did. But some of the moments I most appreciated were, were moments where um, you spoke as a sort of creative writer. And mm -hmm. I, I think for me as a reader, what I tried to impress upon the students was what... Um, what I called saying yes to the text. Mm -hmm. And I, I inherited this from um, David Kazanjan at Penn, who inherited this from Gayatri Spivak uh, mm -hmm. um, at Columbia, I, I believe. Um, and I really loved that. Yeah, it really yes stayed with the, me. Yeah. Yeah. And it did with the students too, I, I think, saying yes to the text multiple times in order to really inhabit a text and really understand what it's saying. You have to say yes at least two times. The first mm -hmm. time you just have to say yes by saying, by reading it all the way through, mm -hmm. which, you know, for some students that is a commitment, right? Mm -hmm. And given the amount of reading that they have to do and, and the um, chaos of their lives right now. Um, anyway, um, but the second yes is to say, to really understand almost on the writer's own terms, mm -hmm. um, what that writer is trying to say. Mm -hmm. And then only then, can, can you move to a place of critique? A thought I've had recently is that in 1940, let's say in the late 40s, around the time when my parents are born, the world looked a certain way. It was ruled by the British and the French and a small handful of others. The world had been carved up in post-World War II it was certainly, I mean, the world my grandparents were born into not only looked a certain way, but made a certain kind of sense because that was what the world was. A mere 10 years later, the world looks completely different. But it doesn't only look different. It has been the ways of thinking about it. There's no going back. So 
in the late 40s, if you're British, you're thinking, and our colonies, and these people in those foreign countries who look a certain way, it is only fit and proper for them to pour the labor of their lifetimes into producing prosperity for us. That was what the world was, was set up as. And whatever innocence anybody might narrate for themselves in that time period, as a white person in Britain, it was impinged upon by this crime that they did not even recognize as a crime. Okay. In 1960, the British leave Nigeria, by which time they've left almost everywhere else, right? By that time, by the, by the 60s, by the mid-60s, that empire is over. It happened very fast. Um, and so that formally speaking, 15 years later, when I'm born, but it's only 15 years, but 15 years later, you know, that's a gap between now and 2006. It's not very long ago. 15 years before I'm born, Nigerians are formally second-class citizens in their own country to white British overlords. It, it, it blows the mind. Formally speaking, you were secondary to them in terms of your rights in your own country. You know, if we had railway lines, they took things from the interior out to the ports so they could go out to Manchester and Liverpool and Bristol. <coughs> and I think decolonization is an analogy, but of course it's also real and continuing. And I feel as though just the way things happened so fast in this period around 60 years ago, um, I think in the past few years, we're in a similar conceptual sea change. And it's happening so fast that it's bewildering, you know? Um, and it impinges a lot on the art that's made and what students learn and how they think about it and what assumptions are made. Um, for example, Kelly and I are both members of an English department. A thing, an entity that was designed to do a certain kind of work in, on, on, under a certain set of assumptions. I could whisper this part. <laughs> Those assumptions no longer hold. Absolutely. The world is something else. And it is related to that, that post-colonial moment. Because once again, the um. question of the equality of persons comes up. Mm. You know, things that could not be questioned are not being questioned because why could they not be questioned? Mm. So if somebody says, for example, that, well, obviously, Shakespeare is the essential writer. It is true that that was essential for a long time. And now in our moment, with all our subtlety and all our love of art and our love of humanity, it is actually legitimate to say, obviously, why? In this new moment, which I, I, I think is, is really spot on, what, as a writer, do you want your readers to feel or, or what kind of work do you want your writing to do mm. to, to your reader that feels different than the self of five 
10, 15 years ago, mm. this, the, the short right. span that you mentioned That's right. here. Um, I just want to quote, I think in an interview you said about your photography, that your early work, of your early work, you wanted people to say, wow, and mm. your later work, you wanted them to say, hmm. Now, I want to say, I'm much more curious about the gaps in the record, but the gaps in the account that we've been given due to our education of what counts as greatness. I have no patience for people who think, you know, they're too black to enjoy mal or whatever. Okay, fine, live your life, but you know, don't, you can't take mine away from me or who think, you know, whatever, their race politics is so intense that they're not gonna get anything out of Emily Dickinson. Okay, if you wanna be deprived, that's your issue. But the flip side of that is that claims have been made for Emily Dickinson and for Beethoven and for Fellini and for all the inherit, you know, and for Homer and for all the inheritance of Western higher education claims that not only need to be interrogated, because I'm I'm not trying to say oh if Beethoven is not the greatest compo is not the greatest composer then who is kind of thing whatever, um, and now we have to find mm -hmm. somebody. I'm I'm actually not also that interested in the project of saying George Bridgetower, whom Beethoven knew and who was black, was actually as good a composer as Beethoven because he wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in the whole. Western systems investment in greatness. That is where that is where I think like the big post-colonial move, conceptual post-colonial move is happening now. Where people are like thundering about standards. And I think the counter view of that is saying, how do we have excellence, which is probably a Maslow need of the human psyche, like true excellence, and yet not thunder on about standards in a way that ends up reverting to a pyramid that still has the best white guys at the top. Yeah, it's not an issue of recovering. It's an issue of finding new ways of as we, as we talked about with teaching, apprehending new ways of believing, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's again, just to speak to your work as a whole. I think that a, a through line is that you do as a writer, you don't fall into nihilism or sarcasm. You know, no. there's a real belief in cultural value that sustains your work and I imagine sustains you as a, as a writer and thinker too but you're asking I, I what I'm hearing is you're asking along what other tenets might belief be possible precisely know? precisely yeah. and not only about the past but also about the present right you know I found myself thinking of George Lamming through mm. this line of reasoning and I don't know if everyone would call him a great novelist, but I was certainly intrigued by his work enough that I wanted to write about it. And his first novel in the castle of my skin, I think is 
is a classic uh, by any standard. But one of the things that he said was he wanted to create a novel where a village was the protagonist, not an individual, hmm. which goes against the crux of what we think the novel is built to do. Mm-hmm. And so that estranged the novel from its roots to such a point where the standards couldn't recognize it for what it was and for what it was trying to explode about the standards. Hmm. And for that reason, I think it's a really interesting novel to teach people who are open to questioning the standard or teaching them what it means to measure something by a standard it was openly antagonistic towards, but mm-hmm. in a creative way, in a creative way and in an accomplished I, I've, way. I've not read that and it sounds very interesting to me because I'm now thinking about Saul Bellow's uh, dismissive comment that he made late in life. He said, you know, who is the um, Tolstoy of the Zulus, the Proust of the Papuans? I'd like to meet him. On one level, I believe that great novels like War and Peace and, you know, Madame Bovary have contributed to destroying the novel, right? There's, there's a way in which a great novel is like um, uh, a great empire, contains within itself the seeds of its own eventual de- deconstruction, right? So that at some point in the 16th century, we, had the, we, we started doing the novels, and there's Rabelais and there's Cervantes, and then it moves on from there. Open-ended form, it's wild. All of this stuff is happening to it and in it. At some point in the 19th century, it becomes a very much verified form. And we have not just novels, we have greatness as the thing in the novel. And in the 20th century, there's this whole American obsession with the great American novel and Mm. what such a thing could be. So that the idea of it as a world-conquering, uncontroversially great piece of culture became central to the public conception of what a novel was doing in the world, right? And it seemed even as it got less ambitious, it uh, formally, it got more ambitious in terms of its own notion of its place in the culture. There is such a thing as a great novel. It's one of the things to which the word great most easily attaches. You know, great, it's a great novel. Um, what a, a novel like Lamings, you know, suggests or maybe, you know, maybe the Rachel Cusk, as I read deeper into it, is that, why great? Are there other ways of approaching what the novel can do and be? And I'm not talking about, oh, light and entertaining novel, but maybe the greatness factor is a problem. I was thinking about your comment in class when we read the Caravaggio piece and you said that, you know, every work should have a vulnerability to it, but also this piece, you wanted it to have a a certain twist of a knife, twist Mm -hmm. of the knife to, Mm -hmm. to the, the reader 
of the New York Times Magazine. And I'm wondering in, in, in this conversation about greatness versus excellence, in thinking about how, how a novel can, can do this work. Thank you. That's such a productive question, you know, because once again, we've all been raised to think of the work of scholarship as well as creative writing as being done in a certain way before a certain audience. And all of this is so formalized already that it is understood to pass without comment. There's, you don't need to say anything about it, you know. And therefore, we have great novels that win prizes, you know, and we have good pieces of scholarship that get people jobs and so on. And now with this conceptually Copernican revolution that we have, you have to say who is editing it? Mm. With what sensibility? For what eventual audience? Mm -hmm. um, to what purpose? You know? Um, it, would, it would sound weird to say, what's the race of my editor? I don't care how weird anything sounds. But my editor right now for this novel is a white woman. It is not irrelevant that I can have serious conversations with her about political positioning and what we are and what the world is. I think it helps that she is younger than I am and she's queer because it means that that conversation is already open. And it helps that she's a woman. Now, if it was a straight white guy who was older than me, he's, he, he'll be, he can be fine. He's a professional. But there's a lot of work for him to do. And it's not enough to simply be a professional anymore. It's not enough to put a book out into the world and say, if it's good, it'll be recognized. Mm. Regardless of who you are as your color, or your color, your gender, any of that. Because... To write a book for, you know, white middle-class women by books made by mainstream publishers. That is the audience. Um, we are in the age of post-rudeness. It would have been rude to say that. Now we can say, what does it mean to cater for that audience? What does it mean to not cater for that audience? You know, um, as a black writer, what does it mean to cater for the white people in universities who assign books? What does it mean to be pushing against that? This is not even about, oh, whether my work is set in Nigeria or whether it's set in there's a way in which if I write something that's set in Nigeria, that's actually more digestible than if I write mm -hmm. something that is set here, but that is poking too much at their sacred cows. When I write in the New York Times and I write white people's ancestors, 
You know, there was a long conversation with my editor at the times about, eh, do we need to say that? And it's like, well, yeah, we do. Because for me, when I'm in those spaces, I experience them as being surrounded by white people's ancestors. You know, and that is what, and I would not even call it a violence. I'll say more about, uh, you know, standing one's ground or, 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 um, Not, not, not even reversal, but something is happening. There's, there's a detournement happening. You know, things are being reoriented. It is, it is a lit, quite literally, this collective revolutionary move moment we're doing. So um, the, the line and, it, I, and, it, and it helps us understand mm -hmm. what we're reading. I just wanted to make sure I understood the line that I quoted back to you about. Um, standing in the room of white ancestors was the line the editor questioned keeping into in the essay. Yeah, I mean, I write quite a bit for the New York Times. Yeah. And every time I write something about whiteness or white people or something like that, which I think is actually kind of a habitual thing for me, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's always queried. Okay. And uh, I always end up retaining it. Good. Because I... Because and my editor, like, understands me now... And she defends me. Okay. Um, it's, you know, you must be aware that it's weird for white people to be reading a piece and suddenly it says, white people, <laughs> you know? It's, it's strange for them. They feel accused. They're like, Particularized. Why, why, why are you bringing up race? Ha! Right. Right. Wow, I'm so glad you asked, you know? <laughs> um, so those forms of signaling that I'm not just some black person here who is putting up a pretty good show of being one of you. In fact, I'm not one of you. I'm speaking to my experience and you're welcome to listen in. So um, our work is coming to, to a close now. The podcast is coming to a close. And um, the signature question that Novel Dialogue, um, this podcast always asks at the end, is um, about pleasure, actually. Hmm. Um, and what uh, what do you do or eat or play or listen to or read when the going gets really tough? What's your favorite treat while in the throes of, of writing? I'm a great lover of music. Uh, I sometimes take out the really good headphones and listen to something really closely and really with it. So I'm a music nerd in that way. Um, but I also like having music that requires a different kind of uh, focal attention, you know, um, not elevator music because that is too dumb for me and it, it drives me crazy. But music that is interesting enough in the medium zone where it's interesting enough to hold my interest, but not overwhelm it. And I love making playlists that I have with me as when I'm writing, but especially when I'm editing. So like, for example, in the past few days, I've been working on like a six hour playlist that just has classical and jazz and like, you know, a lot of non-vocal stuff, uh, some soundtracks and things like that. Not Nothing too much with people singing in English because that'll dr drag me out of my words. But it has just been so much fun to like, how can I make 
a coherent six-hour playlist. So that's a real pleasure for me. I listen to hours of music every day. I have to thank you both so much for doing the show and bringing such scintillating conversation to our first season. Um, as we approach the end of another novel dialogue, John and I would like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from Brandeis University, the Mellon Connected PhD program, and Duke University. Nye Kim is our production intern and designer, and Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. Recent and upcoming dialogues include Elizabeth McMahon in conversation with Helen Garner and Martin Puckner speaking to Catherine Lacey about her latest novel, Pew. So from all of us here at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.